I'm Rich Scott. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Today, we'll be discussing antisense oligonucleotide therapies, which are a real revolutionary type of treatment that is coming online for all sorts of conditions, but including some of the rare disorders that participants in our programmes suffer with. Stanley Crook, welcome to The G Word. You're a founder and longtime chair and chief executive of IONIS um, and a pioneer of antisense-based therapies. You're also the founder of N. Lorem Charitable Foundation um, that, that funds and develops N of One therapies for patients with ultra-rare diseases. And you've led the development of more than 20 marketed drugs through your career You've received numerous honours and awards for your work on RNA-based targeted therapeutics. You've published more than 500 scientific publications and edited, I think, more than 20 books. Um, Welcome to the podcast. It's a real privilege to to have you here with us today. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and it's uh, nice to meet you and and to have an opportunity to talk to the folks that uh, tune into your podcast series. I'm really interested, uh, Stan, on on how you got into this field in the first place. I know that you grew up, I think, in Indianapolis in a blue collar home. Tell us how you found your way into into this field. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll try to make this brief. It's always dangerous to ask somebody about their history. You're likely to get it from birth. So I won't do that to your audience. (laughs) But I did grow up in... um, surroundings that are probably atypical for most people who do a, who, who've had the life I've led and and whether you call it blue color or just miserable either word applies I suppose uh, and I I did a, a good many things that made my life much more difficult than it needed to be and that was just a product of uh, lots of um, things to work out in myself but uh, ultimately um, did go to college, which was, I'd never seen a college when I went to university uh, in aeronautical engineering and then uh, did a degree in pharmacy and uh, and got interested in, in cancer really and why cancer should happen and ultimately went to Baylor Medical School, did a MD, PhD and house staff training there. And at Baylor, I met uh, my professor, Harris Bush, and he became certainly the closest thing to a father I've had and introduced me to both the privilege of practicing medicine and the joy of cutting edge science, which are the two centers of of my life, taking care of patients, helping patients and doing science as a way to advance care. So, you know, (laughs) a great deal of luck, um, given how little little effort I invested in building myself for a career. And the great good fortune of meeting a great uh, person in in Harris Bush, I think, sort of led me in this direction. Ultimately, um, I decided that uh, that I could, if I could be involved in discovering one effective medicine, the leverage for good is so infinitely greater than I could do if I were an academic scientist or if I simply practiced medicine every day. Uh, I went into the pharmaceutical industry and uh, had a somewhat magical early career and rapidly promoted, became president of uh, one of the largest R&D organizations, SmithKline-Beckman at the time. It's now GlaxoSmithKline and had the opportunity to uh, build the first uh, broad-scale successful anti-cancer program in the, in the industry uh, in the first five years of my career. And you're right, I've had the I've had the privilege of bringing more than, I think, almost 25 drugs to the market today, and 
I think more importantly, another 45 or 50 that are in clinical development, and I'm very excited about those. And because I believe being a scientist every day is vital, I've continued to be a scientist throughout my career and still am. And I'm shocked to say that at, at this advanced age, I'm doing the best science I've ever done in my life. <laughs> You'd have asked me that when I was 35, I'd have laughed at you. Uh, and then about uh, three decades ago, uh, in response to what I believe was the industry's failure to invest successfully in new technologies that would make the drug discovery and, the, and development process orders of magnitude more efficient and selective, I founded a company called Ionis. And our focus was to take a blank piece of paper and create a new platform for drug discovery that would be broadly enabling and vastly more efficient. And that's been called either Anacense Technology or RNA-targeted drug discovery. And uh, I think that what, what, what we've achieved it has the potential to be very broadly important to millions and millions of patients and certainly is important to a good many patients today. And can you, for, for some of our listeners who'll be less familiar with Antisense technology, can you give us a sort of dummy's guide to to, to what it is and what, what it was that made you realise 30 or so years ago that, that you needed to take this really big step in, in your career and, and set up a set up Ionis? Uh, I think probably the best way to, to do that is to put it in the context of other drug discovery technologies first. The industry is founded on something called small molecule drug discovery, and you can date the birth of the modern interest, industry very precisely to 1900 with the elaboration of the concept of receptors. And small molecule drug discovery has the plus of being very broadly enabling and the minus of being almost infinitely inefficient. And very little progress really in fundamental changes to that process has happened over the last 120 years. And that's, that, I think, to a large extent, is small molecules have very little information associated with them. You can just think of information as what chemicals do, and a small molecule is like a tiny little bit of information. I think you need more information in your drug. And we don't understand still the nature of small molecule interactions with proteins sufficiently. A new platform came to be uh, during my career, and that was monoclonal antibodies. And that had a meaningful effect on the productivity of the industry for a while, and is certainly not as broadly enabling as small molecules but is capable of helping cancer and immune diseases and, 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 and a few other diseases. Uh, but I came to the conclusion that if patients were really to be helped um, and prices were not to continue to skyrocket, we had to have an entirely new process. And I've always felt that RNA was a better place to, to design medicines than proteins for a lot of reasons, including RNAs in water. Most proteins that are important are in lipid, and that makes it just that much harder. But in simple terms, uh, ASOs uh, are genetic medicines. Uh, we take a, a small bit of, of genetic information, typically 16 to 20 nucleotides. Remember that your, your genes are made up of things called uh, nucleotides. And there are four letters in the in the alphabet a t c g in contrast proteins have an alphabet of 20 nucleus of uh, 20 amino acids and so you can think of them as almost as complex as english which, which is a miserable language to try to understand and so the simple answer is it's a simpler problem we understand the structure of rna we understand how to match that structure with a, a, a chemically modified piece of genetic information and the alphabet is simple, and we can use that alphabet to directly design our, our, our medicines based on genetic information. That then just, it just gives you an incredible advantage in efficiency. And because you're using nature's solution to specificity, the best solution nature came up with was genetic code. And so we're using the, the best solution for specificity as well. And so in one step we would be able to dramatically enhance the efficiency of drug discovery 
and make better medicines. And and so the, the concept sounds simple, and it seems simple today to people, but it was 25 years, you know, $5 billion, and many, many failures and disappointments along the way. But I'm proud to say that we achieved what we set out to achieve. And it's been, a, as you say, it's been a, a long journey. And I guess early on, there were a lot of doubters, but also a lot of practical hurdles that you had to, to solve, sort of, you know, very practical things about the delivery of the, the therapeutics, how to make them last for long enough to have an effect, et cetera, et cetera. Can you give us a, a bit of an idea of the sorts of hurdles you had to, to solve? Yes, for, for context, these are my numbers, but I think they're reasonable. Gene therapy has taken more than 40 years and more than $40 billion of investment and still needs another 10 years and many more billions of dollars. Monoclonals took 30 years, 30 companies, lots of academic work and about $30 billion before we really understood what they could do and what they can. So it just takes a long time. And and the challenges for us were first, we had to create an entirely new chemistry. And that's the medicinal chemistry of oligonucleotides, oligo meaning few, nucleotides, the building blocks of your your genes. And then we had to learn how to modify them so that they would be they would behave as medicines, not certainly uh, DNA or RNA can't do that in the, in the way we want. And then we had to continually advance our understanding of molecular mechanisms learn how to design different ASOs, take advantage of different types of mechanisms. And that took a long time. And I think anyone who starts out in a process to create a new drug discovery technology should be skeptical because most of the time you fail. And certainly there were days when I wondered whether we were going to fail. But the skepticism about what we did was a little greater than in some of the other areas, uh, largely because the other companies who began at the same time, and there were six or seven others, all gave up or failed. And and so it, it, it fell to us, really, to, to continue to persevere and advance the technology. And, and, and so the technology advanced as we, as we learned more. And so, well, let me look. Uh, like stochastic changes, they're very much with very incremental, um, just day-to-day grinding it out in the lab and understanding the, the issues, solving the problems, and creating the next advance in the medicine. And what's really exciting to me today is we're not finished. This technology is still advancing at a, at a very rapid rate, and the molecules that we are getting ready to start clinical trials with next year or the year after are very much better than the ones that we have today. And the ones we have today work pretty well. And give us a sense of the sorts of setting in which you're trying to solve solve these problems. I know perhaps through some of your, your the early work on hypercholesterolemia or on spinal muscular atrophy, it'd be nice to have a feel of the sorts of range of settings that you've been starting off to try and tackle with the, with the technology. Well, the, the technology is extraordinarily broadly enabling now. And so we can basically make an, a medicine to any RNA in the cell. And since all proteins are made from RNA and RNA has many other functions other than just making proteins, basically anything that RNA does, we can address. And with small molecules, while they're very broadly enabling and incredibly inefficient, there are a large number of targets that we'd like to work on that over the decades have been called undruggable targets. And these are proteins that are just difficult, and we don't need to get into why. But for us, in the RNA world, there are no undruggable targets. So the real trick was to advance it so that we could understand how these drugs delivered, how many molecules per cell we needed to have activity, what were the side effects, and so on. So today, the reach of antisense is extraordinarily broad. Uh, from cardiovascular disease to metabolic disease to a neurological disease. And the limits today are really just some tissues and some cell types where, where these ASOs are really not taken up very well. And we're working on that, and we think we're close to solving it. So the last hurdle for us that's really important 
is to be able to work more effectively in the heart and the muscle. That's a t- those are tough tissues for us today, uh, but we we think we're going to solve that problem. And then when we get there, we can treat congestive failure, arrhythmias, and muscle disease. And the other place that's difficult is cancer. Um, and I don't want to get into all the reasons why cancer is difficult. But there again, I think we're making real good progress. So you can think of ASOs more or less like small molecules, only more efficient. So in reach, small molecule uh, there. And and I think tomorrow our reach will be significantly broader. So you name it, we either either can do it today or I think we will be able to do it, you know, in, in the not too distant future. And then perhaps it'd be great to hear the, a bit about the story of, of the development of one of your therapies. I wonder about Spinraza, the spinal muscular atrophy therapy, about what that journey felt like, about the, the sort of practical problems, but also then how you tackled developing the evidence of whether or not it was working and, and explored that together with, with families. Um, well, I'm very happy to talk about Spinraza. It was a privilege to be associated with it in any way. In my career, very early on, I had the opportunity to be involved with bleomycin, cisplatinum, and, and blastin. And in those days, I was still seeing patients and testicular cancer Disseminated testicular cancer was the most common solid tumor to kill young men. And cisplatinum and bleomycin and were, were drugs that I was involved with. And we took testicular cancer from death within a few months to basically cure. And uh, I, I, even then, I was smart enough to know how rare that opportunity would be. I thought that's sort of the peak of my career. And then uh, I had the opportunity to be involved with Spinraza and uh, it eclipsed all that I felt about cisplatinum and bleomycin and all that. So there's a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. It's a genetically caused disease. Before Spinraza, babies born with the worst form of the disease, and that's half the, half the babies born. Uh, had an average lifespan of six months. And if you can imagine watching your six-month-old suffocate, that's what parents had to do. Uh, the reason that these, these babies are so sick is that, that they can't make a protein that's necessary to connect nerves to muscles. And so it's like being like like having a total body denervation of your muscles, you know, if you have a spinal injury or something like that. And in, in the 21st century, the first thing that was learned was the cause. And it turned out that this gene was not working right. It's called an SMN2 gene or SMN1 gene. And the remarkable feature was that it turns out that in humans and humans only, uh, we'd acquire through evolution, a second copy. And that copy, unfortunately, had a mutation that made the processing of the RNA not work. And so even though you might have the gene, it still would not make the RNA that would make the protein. And so we designed Spinraza to address that problem. And that, that, that problem is called splicing. It really doesn't matter what it means, but Spinraza was designed very specifically to that SMN2 RNA to make it work better, and it did. And, of course, you uh, you can imagine, I would say the most terrifying moments in my career were the first patients we treated with Spinraza. These were tiny infants, all of them desperately sick, some of them in danger of dying within a few hours to days. And we were going to be administering this medicine directly in the spinal fluid of these little babies. We had, had no experience doing that. And so that decision <laughs> was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make. And you're right, the ethics of it, of what, if, if you think it worked, can you deny other babies the opportunity? And the answer to that is you have to, because we had to know how well this worked. And, and we couldn't do that just by giving the, the medicine to whoever needed it. 
So uh, that began, and I would say within the first half a dozen babies, I felt we had a really magical medicine. Took a while longer to convince others. Um, I remember the uh, first study, you know, yeah, it, when you're doing a, a, a development of a new medicine, you're blinded to the identities of the patients, of course. But I'm, I couldn't call these babies numbers, and so I gave names. <laughs> and a number of those very sick infants, um, most of them lived. And there, for example, a child I know well, Cameron, who's now eight, is alive, well, happy, breathing on his own, riding his bike, doing all kinds of things. He's he he still has a little trouble walking, but he has a life. He has a future. And uh, the more we learn, the the better the drug got. And we now know that if we treat SMA babies, whether they're the worst form or or the more mild forms, uh, before they become symptomatic. Almost all the all of these babies grow up like normal, healthy children, and I don't know how to do better than to take a, a family that has to watch its child have no future and give them a child that has what so far is a normal, healthy future. And that, that was that that was a magical experience for all of us involved, and and again, I would call it a privilege. And you, you talk about some of the, the really difficult moments you had to, to make the judgment on when you were ready to enter into this with, with the families. Can you sort of tell us a bit more about some of the sort of the, the decisions and the weighings up you needed to do? I know there was discussion, for example, about what the right dose was with the level of knowledge and, and how you navigated that. Um, that burden of knowing, you know, when when to be cautious and when when actually the it it becomes unethical not to to act. Well, uh, I think this is where experience is really valuable. Um, before I ever treated a, you know, provided uh, spinraza to treat an infant, I'd been involved in the industry for forty years in senior positions, and that exposure where you have to make these decisions because you're the final decision maker is a great uh, way to learn. And so uh, I, I would say single most important thing I had going for me was that I had many decades of experience that informed me about risk and, and how to take it. You can't move forward with the new medicine without taking risk, but that you, you must take prudent risk. So the first decision was to see to, to actually explore the notion of ASOs. That's what we call these things, rather than antisense oligonucleotides. Too hard to say, so we just say ASOs. Whether we should even explore using ASOs to treat neurologic central nervous system diseases, because we have to inject them directly in the spinal fluid. So if you've had a spinal tap, that's what we have to do. And so we entered very cautiously there. Um, the person who's worked for me since adult, adult life and trained with me, Frank Bennett, is the person who encouraged me to do it. And so we started slowly. And we asked, could we, could we address targets throughout the brain and the, and the spinal cord? Sure enough, we could. Could we treat a mouse safely? Could we treat a monkey safely? And then we took uh, uh, our first uh, ASO medicine to treat central nervous system disease was for a very aggressive form of ALS, of the Lou Gehrig disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's a neuromuscular disease, a lot like SMA in, in some ways. And we got good experience there, and it appeared to be safe. And... While we were doing that, we were working on, you know, this SMA problem. And so we had some limited clinical experience in adults. We had a lot of experience with ASOs administered by other routes of administrations in many thousands and thousands of patients. We understood the, the chemistry of the molecules that we were using. And since all of these molecules within a chemical class, all the ASOs within a chemical class, basically are the same 
same molecule, they just have a different genetic zip code, you can sort of predict what you're going to get in terms of side effects from knowing it with the next drug, knowing what you got with the last one. So all of that took place. And then the decision, which is always complex in any drug discovery exercise, is are we ready to take the risk to invest in this? And, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. and so I made that decision, and then the moment of truth, we have a baby. We have a baby that's clearly going to die. And in fact, this, these babies were so sick, we really had debates about whether we should treat or not. And, and that was discussed with internally, but it was also discussed with the treating physician. And ultimately, there's only one way to go. You have to take that risk. And so that was the decision made. Then really, it's it's fairly straightforward drug development. Um, and, and, you know, it was to be sure that we designed the trials properly, that we watched what was happening to these children and babies, and that we advanced those programs very aggressively. Of course, there was no treatment for these 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 patients who had this disease. So, so there was a great deal of support for it. And we benefited from uh, patient advocacy groups um, who had done a, a great deal of work in natural histories, understanding the disease and so on. And so one of the things I'd, I'd, I'd have your leaders take away from the Spinraza story is the value of the work that they can do. Um, I was tremendously impressed with how, how much the patient advocacy groups had accomplished that helped us make judgments that are really complex and very dangerous judgments. And and so all that played into the success. Um, and then, of course, it was very rapidly approved around the world. And uh, I think today our partner, Biogen, is the marketing partner. Um, I think we're probably approaching 20,000 patients or so that have been treated. Of course, uh, spinal muscular atrophy is a rare disease but it's a relatively common rare disease. It's, um, it is an extraordinary story and that getting that balance right of caution and, um, and pushing forward progress is so hard to get right. One of the programs that we're um, exploring at the moment at, at Genomics England is, is one of considering what value whole genome sequencing could have in newborns to, to sit alongside the conventional heel prick approaches that we have today to diagnose more conditions to to get ahead of the curve but also to support research to to find other settings where we can get ahead of the curve find that window of opportunity as you have in Spinraza it'd be I I, I don't know how much you've heard of our program before we're very much in the in the design phase and in discussions with the public with 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 family family groups and with experts, I'd be really interested on in what guidance you have to us and how we think about it and how we make some of those judgments. Well, first of all, I think that for common diseases, for rare diseases, and for what we'll talk about in a little bit, what I call nano-rare diseases, the most single most important step that the community can take is to introduce a whole genome sequencing into newborn screening. Just think of the uh, of Spinraza. Without, you know, when we when we first started, we, we we treated sick patients, and many of these patients were very advanced, and they had skeletal malformations and other things that meant that there were just architectural features of these these patients that we were never going to fix. Once we understood what a powerful medicine Spinraza was. The next step was to find these patients before they become symptomatic. And it's very easy to do with genetic sequencing. And so Spinraza is a perfect example of the power of that. When, if, if, you, if you consider the even rarer diseases, uh, diseases that, uh, that are caused by a mutation that may affect one patient, uh, recent data suggests that those patients spend on average, if they're fortunate, eight years plus before they have a diagnosis. Imagine that. 
you have a terrible disease, it's progressing, and it takes you eight years to get a diagnosis. And the vast majority of, of the patients I'm focused on these days uh, die before they ever are diagnosed. So that's, that's got to be fixed. And there's a basic truism of treatment, and that is the earlier in the disease, the better the treatment. So I'm a strong advocate for uh, introducing uh, uh, genomic sequencing into the standard repertoire of tests that are that are performed on on newborns. There are multiple ethical issues to this, but we do have you know important historical lessons, and the and the and the lesson to focus on is the eugenics experience, the misguided eugenics experience that really began in the U.S. and then was exported to other places like Germany and elsewhere. But I think those are bioethical issues that can be, I think, dealt with very straightforwardly. But you learn from history and, 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 you, and make response to an observation of a mutation or a potential problem, a choice that can be made by the parents. So it's, it's, it's an information gathering exercise to my mind. And then providing that information to parents and patients in a way that informs them about making a, a, a decision on their health and their child's health that is fully informed and uses the, the methods that we have today, which are so powerful. It would be insane for society not to use these powerful new tools to help us get to patients sooner. It, it, so I applaud your efforts. There are other efforts like it going on in other parts of the world. And I strongly encourage all of them. And I, I, again, I think in Lorem, as we, we'll get to, you know, always, if you have a treatment, that always heightens the potential to encourage people to get a diagnosis. And so I think it's, it's, it's both identifying the problem. And if you identify a mutation, now you have an actionable uh, cause. I mean, you know the cause. And then coupling that to treatment in one way or another, that's, that is the essential next step in advancing the health of, of, of human beings around the world. And it does, it does feel like we're at a real crossroads in terms of some of the potential here, particularly for ultra-rare conditions. So tell us a bit about Enlorem, what the, the foundation is, and also how it came about and why you needed to bust out of the conventional box and set it up in the charitable model. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Just step back for just a minute. Let's talk about patients. That's where we have to always begin, right? This is about patients. And all the healthcare systems of the developed economies were built quite naturally and appropriately to help address the common diseases. The regulations are were set for that. And, and the commercial model is based on that. And it's been, you know, manipulated a bit to take care of rare and ultra rare diseases. Rare diseases are defined in the U.S. as less than 200,000 patients and similarly in the, in the EU. Ultra rare patients is a term that's been coined recently and is undefined, but it's been used to, to describe patients up to 12,000. But I think if you start looking at even rarer circumstances, you have to now think about them very differently. They, they have different kinds of issues and their solutions are very different. And so there's a group of patients that I'm calling these days nano-rare patients. These are patients who have mutations that are unique to them or the worldwide prevalence is less than 30. That's one group. And these patients are the most isolated, desperate, and medically underserved patients in, that, that I have ever seen. There's another group that I'm these days calling micro-rares, say sort of in the 30 to 3, 400. Uh, these are patients, this is a patient group that is going to be very difficult to handle commercially, but is feasible. With nano-rare, uh, it's literally impossible to to do uh, studies that would meet any regulatory guidance for approval uh, for commercial use. And equally importantly, if you think about the cost of doing that, that would mean you'd have to charge these patients tens of millions of dollars a year for the medicine. Uh, otherwise, there's no commercial sense in investing 
what you'd need to invest. So we have a patient population that's uniquely problematic. It's uniquely problematic because numbers. <laughs> what do you do with a single patient that has a single mutation? Well, first of all, as a physician, what you do when a patient walks in the door is you look at him and you and, and you and you run through a thing called differential diagnosis, which is just pattern recognition. Well, has this pattern been seen or described before? If it's never been seen or described before, <laughs> what do you do with it? And what you do with it these days is mess it up because nobody knows how to handle these patients. So diagnosis is a terrible issue. And then finding a way to treat these patients is, is suppose you had a treatment, how would you get it to them? So in Lorem is a, is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. And our mission is to take advantage of the efficiency, versatility, and cost-effectiveness of this Anisense technology or ASO technology that we created at my company to one patient at a time, one mutation at a time, create, that means discover, a, an, an experimental ASO medicine for that patient and that patient only, then develop it for that patient and provide that, that, that experimental ASO to those patients for free for life. It hit me about three years before I founded Enlorm that technology that we had could, could potentially do that. Uh, and it was so inconceivable to me that I spent, you know, probably six months just checking my sanity and looking at the numbers and this can't be, you know, this, this, you can't do this. But the more I looked, the more it seemed feasible. So I felt I had the technology. And then, of course, it became a, a moral question. If I could do this, how, how could I not do it? And, and, and I felt I was the right person to do it. Then the next step was to ask how could we ac access patients who've been phenotypically, that is, they're, what they look like uh, characterized, and genotypically, what their genes are like uh, characterized, and in, in, in places where we could, we could work with the, a clinical investigator who would, who would be able to treat if we made a medicine. And fortunately, in the United States, there's been a consortium put together of, of, of academic medical centers that's called the Undiagnosed Disease Network. And they've done great work in taking these diseases that have never been diagnosed. And I don't want to talk about disease. I want to talk about patients. These are patients who are symptomatic, progressing in their disease, and have never been diagnosed. They don't even get to know why their lives are shorter and, and more limited than yours and mine. And they've now addressed this over the last decade or so and created a, a bunch of these systems that we need to get these patients in, get them diagnosed, have them genetically characterized, which is all that we need all that if we're going to do our job. So I developed collaboration with the UDN. Uh, and then the next step was to see if the, there would be support for this from the regulators. And I focused on the FDA because we were in the U.S. And I was very pleased that, that the FDA responded and were very interested. And I'm thrilled uh, in an extraordinarily rapid um, uh, time frame for, the, for regulations anyway. The FDA has issued specific guidance for nonprofit creation and provision of ASOs, and, and that guidance is specific for ASOs. So with that, I had everything in place, and I found it um, uh, in Lorm in, 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 in January 2020. Uh, so we're just a little about, just two years old. So you, you have to have access to the patient, the physician, the genetic information. You must have a regulatory system that's designed specifically for this problem. And you need a technology that is broadly useful, versatile, rapid, cost-effective, um, and uh, capable of, of treating a wide range of patients and scalable. Because even though we know that these patients may be a single patient in the world with a particular mutation. We estimate that there are millions and millions of these patients. Uh, it's, it is 
the lowest part of the iceberg of, of, of disease. And we, we don't have yet an idea of how big this is, but we know it's big. So the technology we have can, can do all those things. So we got underway. The founding donors were the company I created, Ionis, our partner in neurosciences, Biogen, and then my wife and I have contributed, uh, you know, um, as, as well. And just talk about, I guess, the, that change of mindset from the regulator, but also in terms of the, the evidence that one will generate in terms of benefits and so on. How, how did that come about? How, how did that thinking adapt to this situation? Because that's something that not just in nano rare disease situations, as you describe it, but is a real challenge in rare disease more broadly. Well, I, I, again, I think the solutions are different as you move from different patient populations. Here, it was very apparent to me that a commercial model could not work and should not. Uh, I, I think it would be unconscionable for the industry to charge a single patient $10, 20000000 million a year to live. That's just, I'm, I'm not going to have that. If I can stop it, I'm going to stop it. Um, so the first step was decide that it that it could not be a commercial model. Then, if you're no longer trying to commercialize, what do you need to do to to with the technology I have to assure that you're taking only prudent risk with those patients? So, how what kind of studies do we need to do preclinically, and how can we minimize those and minimize the time? Because these patients, most of the, I mean, we've lost patients already um, because they're progressing toward death, or blindness, or the loss of a kidney, or all of these things, they're, 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 by the time they're diagnosed, most of them are very advanced. So we had to think about that. And then what do you do in a single patient to evaluate whether a drug is helping or not? And so all that had to be invented. And, and we've invented these systems that I, th- I think are working that will help us uh, determine whether we're helping a patient or not. Uh, so it, it just requires... Uh, an almost 180 degree turn in the way you think as a, as a drug developer. And it's been very interesting just to retrain people who've been trained very aggressively to dot every I and cross every T that that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to help a single patient. And I know you've thought very carefully about the numbers. So you talk about sort of one to 30 uh, people with a certain condition being in your, your, um, nano rare group and so on. Tell us a bit about how you came up with those numbers and where those boundaries lie there. Well, the first thing to remember is once you know the mutation or the cause of the disease, the name of the disease is irrelevant. Uh, the names of diseases that we use, which I think are now impediments to progress, you know, most of them are thousands of years old. They're just descriptions of what patients look like when they're advanced enough that you can have symptoms. So one of the real powers here is that that all these patients are genetic. And so once we have the mutation understood, we know the cause. And and because we have medicines that we can design directly to that mutation, we know how to do it. And so that's the big plus. So as I looked through this and I thought about the cost structure and everything else, I felt that uh, a nonprofit model could be sustainable in that range of one to 30 patients. And it, and I also felt that that range, it was absolutely a required model. And if you get a bit larger, the problems are most of these diseases are, they're all genetic, but the challenges to drug development are different. And that's mostly risk management. Here's the situation that the head of R&D finds himself in. You've got a medicine that you've made. It looks really good in animals. You've got all the toxicity studies done. And now you have to make the decision, do I invest 100, 200, 500 million or a billion dollars in developing this drug? And at that stage, it's all risk. We know that most drugs fail. And so you look at the commercial opportunity and you can't justify the dollars being invested because you dis- you have to discount it 90% for risk. And so there, the solution, I think, is a venture philanthropy solution where we, where we focus on doing the key study 
that will reduce the risk so that then a commercial investment can be made. So two very different models. I'm working on both. And and the Enlarm model, I think, is now pretty demonstrated it can work. I think the remaining hurdle from, for us is to demonstrate it's sustainable uh, because the demand that we've experienced is so much greater than we expected. And we know that the demand is only going to grow. And and so I think the model is working. Um, we've now, as I was setting up Enlarm, we had the opportunity to treat uh, 14 patients. And the most compelling data are data in a group of patients uh, called FUS-ALS patients. Uh, FUS-ALS is one of the most aggressive um, patient populations uh, from symptom onset to death. It's thought to be about six months or so, but it's really not known very well. Uh, but we've had the opportunity now with Neil Schneider, who's a physician, neurologist, scientist at Columbia, uh, to treat 11 patients. And there, the I think, again, we haven't proven anything, or Neil hasn't proven anything, but I think the evidence is pretty compelling that these people are living longer and getting stronger. Uh, so what we had to do first was create a system that would assure that as we make these complex risk-benefit decisions, who to treat? Should we treat this person or that person? That that be foolproof because we're, 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 we're doing minimum work before we go to the clinic. So we don't understand these medicines the way we do normal medicines. That means every step has to be as close to perfect as we can make it. First and terribly important step is, is this a patient we should treat? That's very complex judgment. And so I created a, a committee of experts in all the diseases and organs that we're focused on, as well as experts in clinical trials and, of course, experts in our technology. And so when there's an application submitted, that application is a patient. And that patient is presented to this access to treatment committee. And they advise whether to treat or not. And then ultimately, our executive group makes that final decision, but it's a thoughtful decision, and it's focused on managing this patient and exposing this patient only to prudent risk. There's no such thing as a risk-free trial of anything, but certainly a medicine, but prudent risk we can get to. Then the next step is actually discover and and get an ASO ready for, for treatment, and that's a complex process. But uh, among the really great advantages that we have is that we have 30 plus years of knowledge, automation, massively parallel screening systems. And so we put all that in place and to find the best ASO in a, in a particular RNA, we, we typically screen 500 to 1,000 sites in that RNA. And that can be done in a few days it, it, with, it, it, with our technology. So we've reduce the cost of drug discovery to the place where it is not a minimal contributor to cost. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to say, but we, we can't, nor is it a big contributor to time. Um, so our goal is to treat these patients within 18 months of receipt of, of application. The next step is what are you treating and why are you treating it? And the way we handle that is we work with the physician and and the patient or parent and identify a primary treatment goal. This is a goal. We know what's wrong with this patient. We know there's a mutation. We have a good understanding of the signs and symptoms. What could we do with an, an ASO that would actually matter to this patient? You, you don't want to make a medicine like this for a, a problem that really isn't plaguing the patient. We define that. And we define the way we're going to measure that disease. And since these are single patients, that we can't use what are called novel biomarkers. We have to use traditional clinical measures. Suppose the patient has, you know, constant seizures. Well, that's an easy thing for us to measure. And then we define a secondary treatment goal. What, what else would we like to do? And then some exploratory goals. We define the measures that we're going to use. And then while we're trying to discover and develop the ASO, we ask that the physician and parent or patient document the disease and those parameters 
So at the, when we're ready to treat, we have a one-year natural history in that patient. We can say, this symptom has gotten worse. This symptom has stayed the same. This symptom is no longer material. And then we, during the first year of treatment, we, we focus on exactly those endpoints and measure exactly the same thing. And so at the end of it then, we can at least compare the trajectory of the patient before treatment to the trajectory of the patient after treatment. And then we encourage our, our investigators to publish, and then we'll be collecting data, aggregating it and analyzing it and presenting that to, to all the communities of interest. So all these systems are in place, and we're busy discovering and developing ASOs uh, for these patients. I thought when we started that by now we might have, oh, 10 or 12 or 15 applications, particularly because of COVID and all the other things that happened. And it planned to run in Lorne basically with all volunteers for the first three years. But we are approaching 140 or 150 applications. We've approved for treatment almost 50 patients, added patients. And so we've had to change very rapidly and move to hiring people, building labs, doing all the things that we had to do. And we're still doing that and raise a lot of money. So we've been pretty overwhelmed, but I'm pleased with where we are. And, you know, we're playing catch up. Um, we're not achieving our goal of 18 months on average, but that's just really just a, that's an overwhelming demand issue that once we get caught up, we can do. The other thing that we've done that I'm very proud of is that we know we can't do this by ourselves. And we build a, already a very large uh, network of collaborators and donors and so on. All the sort of groups that we use to, to support drug discovery and development, like manufacturers or how a vial gets filled with the medicine, all of them are involved. And as a result, we've been able to reduce the cost per patient by about 40% from the, the low number that we had. And, you know, if you think about a, a starting from scratch and discovering and developing a drug and doing it for less than a million dollars, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And the more we reduce the cost, the more more patients we can treat. So we've uh, all in aggregate, we've probably raised total more than fifty million dollars in dollars and and in kind uh, donations. That partnership uh, roster is growing every day, and now we need to raise another couple hundred million dollars <laughs> uh, to manage to treat. And as we do, and as we're learning. We want to move to the to the EU and to Asia, where there are a lot of rare, uh, nano rare diseases, and I'm hopeful we'll get there pretty soon. So, I mean, that's that's sort of the nutshell of what we've done over the last two years. I, I do want to, before I finish that, talk about our limits. We we can't address every mutation. There are things called null mutations, in particular. Null means no. And these mutations mean you make none of the protein that you need. And for that, we need gene therapy. And so we're very hopeful gene therapy, as it progresses, will come online for these patients. Uh, and the other limitations are, at least for the moment, we're focused on only five organs and three routes of delivery. Why? Because we know those organs. We know we have very good potency. We know the therapeutic index. That is, the risk is low. Not zero, but low. And those are the liver and kidney by subcutaneous administration, the eye directly injecting in the eye. And we have lots of experience doing that. Sounds terrible, but it, it's really not. The lung by aerosol and then uh, the central nervous system uh, with intrathecal injections directly in spinal fluid. That also means that the doses are very low and the dose frequency is very long. So... Uh, the cost of the medicine is actually a small contributor as well. You know, as, as we learn more about technology, hope to advance to other diseases. So, you know, it's great that we're able to think about treating 50 or more patients. But it's important for people to hear we also were unable to treat, you know, about 80. And there are two ways to look at that. My gosh, what about those other 80? And that's certainly one good way. But I look at it 
not about what we can't do, but the patients we can help and the families that we can help. And there's a dictum in therapeutics that I think we all live by. You know, treat the patients you, you can treat today as well as you can while investing to be able to do a better job for more patients tomorrow. Our job is to treat the people we can today while everyone, including us, invest in being able to do more and better in the coming years. And I'm proud of what we've accomplished and <laughs> a bit intimidated about what we have to do next, but I think we're on good track. It's a it's an absolutely extraordinary story, and just the I think that that balance the the, the prudence and your restlessness um, those two things together with you know based on on so much experience and and knowledge and just dissatisfaction with I guess the the state of the affairs if you don't push forward I think is just so inspiring and for so many families that one meets in, in clinic just the, the fact that we're in this era where, as you say, we don't have answers for, for so many families, but, but there is, there is movement. It's just really inspiring. You know, I also think that these patients are um, the most isolated group of patients I've ever dealt with. And it's heartbreaking for me. This experience is like returning to the practice of medicine. It's the intimacy of one patient at a time. And that's joyous when it works and it's horrible, heartbreaking when it doesn't. And if you think about patients with common diseases and rare diseases, they have communities. They can they can talk to somebody else who has the disease and they can that helps. These patients we're dealing with are hopeless, and any physician will tell you that if a patient is hopeless, the disease is going to progress more rapidly, right? So we want to bring them hope. And they're isolated. They have no one to talk to. And so we're also building a program that we call Patient Empowerment Program, or PEP. You have to have an acronym, right? And among the things we'll be launching, I hope in the spring, is a podcast series where that's entirely focused on the nanorare patients and or all the stakeholders there can can participate. And I've also done quite a bit of, of, and we'll be introducing these two more lecture type things to help these people who are trying to do incredible things uh, that they're not trained to do. They don't understand chemistry or biology, and yet they're trying to find a treatment for their child. Help them do it with more knowledge. Uh, I think we have to bring a, this community together and we have to make sure that they're informed, really informed about what the problems are, what the challenges are, and what potential solutions there are today, and where to invest for tomorrow to do this better. And and so that's another effort that we're trying to put in place, because I think these patients need it. And the more you deal with them, the more you realize that the isolation and hopelessness is something that we have to try to address while we're getting ready to try to treat them. Yeah. And I think, as you say, it's the your description of this being medicine um, very much sort of distilled into those, those intimate conversations that as a doctor one has, sometimes full of hope and um, difference one can make. And sometimes, as you say, just um, really, really tragic situations. One of the things that I really like about what you describe and something that we we really enjoy and is so important to us at Genomics England is making sure that participants in our programs are at the centre of driving it forward, at the centre of the conversations we have. And I love that idea of a, a podcast series focused all around that. One of the things I'd be really interested to hear, there are areas you think maybe a long way away from, from the conversation we've had today that, that are really under-discussed, but really need to be out there and 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 for people to to debate and and engage with that that perhaps we should focus on more in the podcast in future episodes well we've touched on one and and that's um introducing genomic sequencing as early as possible in human life uh, i i think the potential knowledge gained and the benefit gained from that relatively small investment is incredible we have no idea how 
many nano-rare mutations there are in the human genome. We have no idea what the number of the patients that are involved is. And we really have no idea of what, the, what, what happens to these patients. And the more light we can shine on that, the better we're going to be able to do. So that, 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 that is something that has to be, I think, um, um, you know, top of mind in our, in our broad conversation. I think a, a second area that um, is essential is to help people understand how difficult it is to make a new platform for new medicines and to understand that it will take time, dollars, and failure. And uh, too often I see uh, new technologies coming forward and everyone thinking that they're going to make a difference to human life immediately. And really, it's a 30-year process to, to do these things. CRISPR is a good example today. I'm excited about CRISPR as a tool and so on, particularly RNA CRISPR. And, and I think that's a big hope for the future, but I, wanna, I want people to understand that that's not today for the bulk of these patients. That's off in the future. I think the third thing that we have to have a better conversation about is the economics of healthcare. How do we value a single human life versus investments to affect the lives of millions? And how can we do a better job of, of, of finding a, a, a sensible solution that manages that incredible um, dimension of human need and suffering, uh, recognizing the economics of healthcare are a big part of, of our lives. Um, certainly, I felt when I started in Lorem that I could not add to the cost of healthcare, and that if I went forward with a solution that demanded you know, providers decide to spend millions of dollars on one of these patients when they are unable to spend the billions of dollars they need to on the larger groups of patients, these patients would lose. I think that's a that's a discussion that's been in the community, that is the healthcare community in, in various ways and places, but I think it needs to be externalized and be a conversation that the customers, the patients, really play a big role in. Thank you. And one of the things I've really been reflecting on as you've been talking today is how much time you personally have spent thinking very carefully about the different models. And as you say, that not it's not something that, and it varies between countries, between healthcare systems, is often had that discussion in the public. A really good suggestion. You know, it can be simplified and, and it can be a conversation that everyone can participate in. It's pretty easy to ask do you really want to invest in, in in treating a single patient? If you do, here's what it's going to cost. If, 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 if you decide that today we can't do that, then what do we do about these patients? How do we handle that? These are not complex. You don't need an economist to help you through this. You just need some human beings who, who think and care. And I applaud uh, what, uh, what you guys are doing in, uh, I think that's really important work, and um, and and hope that uh, that the public recognizes how important that work is and how much progress is being made. Well, Stan, thank you so much to you for for the time joining us today. I really really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure our listeners enjoy listening back to it. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day, making the most incredible progress. Uh, you know, building on decades of experience and making such a difference. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. You can find more about Stan Crook and his organization's Ionis Pharma at ionispharma.com. And you can read about the charitable foundation that he founded, nlorem, at nlorem, n-l-o-r-e-m dot org.
If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you'd like us to interview, do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Now, if you've enjoyed listening, please give us a five-star review because it really helps other people find out about the series. We appreciate your support. Until next time, I'm Rich Scott. See you on the next episode of The G Word.